Hello and welcome to PSA Today. That's Privacy, Surveillance, and Anonymity. I am here with my co-host, Kalia Young. It is Wednesday, October 14th. This is PSA number 21. And we are here with a special guest, Dave Birch, who is an author, advisor, and a commentator in the world of digital finance. How was that, Dave? <laughs> that was great. Thank you very much, Seth. Lovely to see you again, Kalia. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, so you've been writing some books. Yeah, I, um, I, well, I flatter myself that my first book sort of did okay. So I got, I got a bit carried away, and uh, I wrote uh, a couple more a couple more books and now I'm writing my fourth book at the moment. So yeah. So I, I rather like being described as an author as you can probably tell. Um, but, uh, the current book, um, the currency cold war really doesn't have anything to do with identity. That's, that's about digital currency and, um, you know, some, 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 the very current developments in that space. And I'm just getting back to writing more about identity now. So, I, I hope um, I hope that uh, some of the topics I've chosen are, are right and and relevant to cover. How, how is digital currency not on some fundamental level about identity? Well, um, uh, one of my fundamental and underlying theses is about the, the the relationship between identity and money, and I've talked about that repeatedly in my other books. Um, but but this is this is a much more specific book because it's about uh, it, it's about what's going on in digital currency now. It's not about the sort of big picture stuff and the future stuff. It's it's about where we are now. So I know it sounds trite, but I say this all the time. But you know the sort of the sort of payments business is basically um, identity plus some fairly trivial spreadsheets. Like if you can fix identity, then the payments part of it is pretty trivial. You know moving value from person to person but what that value is 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 quite an interesting topic and um because of various developments in that space at the moment by which i mean all of the usual things you know blockchains and um homomorphic encryption and blinding and zero knowledge proofs and all that sort of stuff um it's possible to construct some new kinds of um currencies I, I personally am extremely interested in the sort of more um, community-centric versions of those currencies, uh, what you might call smart money. Um, but you know, one within that one kind of money is central bank money. And at first, I think people, you know, thought that that was a very futuristic topic, and that it was something that was interesting to sort of. Bitcoin lunatics and, you know, people speculating about economics and science fiction writers and all that sort of thing. Um, but then, of course, last year you had serious central bankers like Mark Carney, who used to run the Bank of England, standing up and saying, possibly time to do something about digital currency of one form or another. And then earlier this year, uh, of course, the Chinese actually launched a digital currency. It's running in four four cities right now. But this is, I don't make a point about this, but I can't resist pointing out that was launched at approximately the same week that America 
was printing and mailing out stimulus checks to people, many of whom were alive, actually. So it wasn't a complete disaster. But I just there was something very symbolic about printing out checks and sending them to people in the post in the same week that the Chinese were running up their digital currency in four cities. So, so yes, you're right. How smart? How smart? What is their digital currency? You talk about smart money and community centric. And when you talk about the Chinese digital currency, just go well, a little bit. Well, the Chinese digital currency is is not particularly smart. So. Um, so by smart money, I mean money that, um, uh, you know, money that has an API, theirs has an API, money that has a memory, theirs doesn't, it's balances, money that um, can learn. So what, what the Chinese have done is is essentially tried to emulate physical currency, but in digital form. Um, so, you know, you have a balance on your phone and you can transfer parts of that balance to other people, you know which could be banks or retailers, or it could be you and me, which actually is a very interesting point. The most in, but, 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 you know, it's the digital currency. It's run by the central bank. And that's the end of the story. I mean, I think I'm, I'm very interested in the sort of smart money ideas where you have money that money that embodies the values of the communities that it represents. So you might have, uh, you know, you might have some American money, but you might just as easily have some New York money. In fact, there was a bill in front of the New York um, state, uh, you know, to, to, to have a look at it. They got defeated, but, but maybe not forever. And so, you know, you might have some kinds of money that have in particular different levels of privacy associated with them. Um, you might have some kinds of money that can, can or can't be used for certain things in certain areas. That's, you know, that's what I would call sort of really smart money. So, by that measure, it's not smart money, um, but it is digital currency. And one of the aspects of it that's particularly interesting is that, and the People's Bank of China highlighted this in their in their sort of promotional material. One of the key things they want is that they want their money to be able to pass person to person without going through a central intermediary. And the reason, and and so that's so that you know you can you can use QR codes or NFC or something to transfer money from your phone to somebody else's phone, even if there's no network. So if there's been a natural disaster and the, the comms have gone down, um, the phones will still work phone to phone within limits. I mean, you can't transfer billions from one phone to another phone. And obviously when the system spins back up and you get reconnected, then it'll do a reconciliation. But nonetheless, you can't do that with Bitcoin or um, or you know your or Zelle or anything else. So... I think that's really pretty interesting. And they... Um, so you know, their currency does work phone to phone without a network connection. It does work phone to phone without a network connection. Interesting. Right. To limits. Um, and they talk about uh, maintaining the privacy of cash. They, they don't mean privacy in the same sense that you mean it. <coughs> there are some cultural differences in the concept. So they have what what you and I would call second party privacy. So in other words, if somebody sends you money from an electronic wallet, you don't know who they are and they don't know who you are. It's not part of the transaction. Mm. Uh, uh, of course, there's no third party privacy because the Bank of China knows who everybody is. So it's not it's not quite what you'd mean by but none, yeah. but nonetheless it you know it's it's coming up and it and it works. And it, at a time of great stress 
you know the the pandemic um you know it, it you do see fractures coming up so, so i think one of the renewed re, one of the reasons why there's such a renewed interest in digital identity is because while people like well i'll pick on kalia because she's sitting here while people like kalia have been spending years trying to explain to people what a digital identity is why we should have them why it's not the same as just digitizing the identities we've already got which is one of my hobby horses about this as well that's all well and good but when the roof falls in the lack of that infrastructure shows up so when everything's ticking along nicely you can get by you know it doesn't matter you know there's not enough credit card fraud you know it doesn't matter that everybody's identities have already been stolen you know it's we can get by society doesn't collapse the banks don't go bankrupt but when when there's a crisis and you needed digital money and digital identity, you didn't have it. And that has, in the UK, for example, if you look at the sort of side effects of that, which are you've suddenly got millions of people trying to claim for state assistance. I, I might be wrong in the statistic, but I think only a third of them um, could actually claim using the government's digital identity. It didn't work for everybody else. So it takes ages to, to connect and get benefits and sign on. You have subsidies like the business subsidies uh, where trying to establish who a business is and who runs it and who these people are and whether it can have stimulus money is such a problem that the government has no choice but to err on the side of caution and basically send money out to and i think the figure i saw yesterday is in the uk they're now saying something between 25 and 30 billion pounds has already gone into fraudulent um, activities and, and that money will never get recovered. You know, they'll never get that money back. So I think we've been through an interesting flip. None of us would have wanted it this way. Of course not. It'd be ridiculous. But the fact that something bad's happened has shown up the lack of infrastructure. Uh, not not just around identity and money. I mean, I have to say around everything else as well, because I don't remember the figures off the top of my head, but, you know, Taiwan, population, whatever it is, I don't know. Was it 25 million or something? Yeah right next door to china covid deaths five or something isn't yeah. it i don't even remember it's like it's effectively yeah. zero you know uh, new york state is thirty six thousand or something right so so there's all sorts of lack of infrastructure being shown up i'm not saying there's something special about digital identity and digital money but i'm just saying that the lack of digital identity and digital money has been has been shown to be um pretty problematic in current circumstances and in some countries um i was looking at a thing from the world bank the other day about colombia which is quite an interesting case study you know the government basically said to people you know listen we're going to give everybody some money to help them get through this terrible period but basically if you want it you've got to go get a mobile wallet right you can you know you just we don't care which one you can choose any bank any telco whichever one you want it doesn't matter but you go sign up and we'll send you the money. And um, the reason you can do that, of course, is because you've got either a population register or an ID card or something where you can match all these things up. In the US, it, 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 it wouldn't work. I mean, because there is no way of establishing who anybody is. Plus the fact people will be out on the streets anyway, demonstrating that this is, you know, and 5G causes cancer, by the way, and, you know, all this sort of thing. So... So, yeah, so I think this, I think what it is, Kalia, is I think some of the idea, and certainly some of the ideas you and I have discussed over the years, I'm not, I'm not saying we're right about everything, but 
but I, I do think there are there are some people around who have a clearer mental model of what digital identity is than some other people. But it has it has taken on a new impetus because of what's happened. And I think when you see some of the conversations going on now, certainly some of the conversations I've been involved in, you're starting to get called into meetings you wouldn't have been called into before because basically something's got to be done. And, yeah, so as I say, nobody would have wanted things to be like this, but um, but we are where we are. You know, I was looking at – there's a thing I saw from PayPal this morning saying – I think they've seen six years growth in the past year or something like that. I can't remember the figures. But, you know, the acceleration in online commerce and, and electronic interactions of all kinds, you have a whole generation of people who, who weren't interested in doing anything online, old people broadly, um, who now have no choice but to get online to do things. You have people who are now faced – I mean, when we've talked about these problems canonically in the past, I mean, the digital identity problems – We've tended to focus on things like, you know, the common things like, you know, getting a bank account and um, or law enforcement issues and things like that. And now you've got whole segments of the economy which never had to deal with any of this stuff, who now suddenly education, health, suddenly they've got to onboard people online. They've got to do digital onboarding. They've got to do digital tracking and management. They're thrown into this morass of of. GDPR and California privacy, and 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 basically, they're discovering that um, you know you know you, you quite often hear people. I mean, generally, sort of lazy management consultants that that can't be bothered to. But you, you quite often hear people talking about data is the new oil as the sort of aphorism, which it plainly isn't. I mean, it's nothing could be further from oil because oil is a Oil is a, uh, you know, it's a resource that has an extraction economy around it. I mean, once you burn the oil, the oil's gone. That's the end. You don't make some more oil. Like the whole, the, re- the reason oil has certain economic characteristics is because it gets used up. So mm-hmm. you have to use valuable things. Yeah. You know, data isn't the new oil because data doesn't get used up. And, and if, if anything, the more data you've got, the more data you get. Uh, do you, have you read that book, The New Dark Age by James Bridle? I, I like that book very much. So his, it's it's sort of is basically saying, you know, we you know we had the dark ages and then we had the Renaissance, and you know what, that was just a blip, and now we've got the dark ages again. I, I wouldn't read it if you're on your own, by the way, this book. But um, well, I mean, Jane Jane Jacobs, Jane Jacobs, her last book, which she wrote when she was 92 and she died at 94, is called The Dark Age Ahead. She was like, yeah. this is what's coming, everybody. And you know yeah, the declaration I mean, I of science and yeah, yeah, I don't want to be a downer. And I'm you know James James's work is is much more sophisticated than my paraphrasing. But, um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, and I'm sure Jane was at well. Actually, the the Jane Jacobs book I've actually got, I adore, which is on my shelf back there, is Cities and the Wealth of Nations, which is one of my other favourite books for completely different reasons. She's brilliant, but. Um, so, Dave, I have a, a, a tweet from a couple of days ago that I wanted you to um, help me oh, sure. understand. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Paul Graham, who started Y Combinator and which gave birth to Airbnb and Dropbox and, and, and legends and darlings of Silicon Valley from the last 15 years. Um, I absolutely love Dropbox. I use it all the time. It's one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite services. 
So he said, I'm going to risk calling it. The feeling of deja vu is too strong. Stripe is the next Google. I saw that and uh, I, I understand the sentiment. You know, the, so first, what is the sentiment? The, sen the yeah. sentiment is that data about payments is more important than the payments themselves. So, so essentially, the more data you can collect about payments, uh, and, 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 and remember, for the banking industry, payments are the dominant touch point. I don't remember the figure, but I think, I think 85 to 90% of the average person's interaction with the average financial institution is about payments. So if, if that's an incredible throw. This is, great. this is great because your immediate interpretation is non-obvious and non-trivial, right? Because when someone else read that statement, they think, oh, Stripe is just going to be worth $100 billion. Oh, well, it might well be worth $100 well, you're, you're saying something else, which is important, which is, well, help us understand what is Stripe in, in your kind of, in the way you formulate digital money and you think about all the different systems and governments, what role is Stripe playing and what do you think it can be well, playing? What, in what role it plays? Well, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm not an entrepreneur. And one of the reasons why I, I admire people who, are, who really are genuine entrepreneurs is because they, they take some, you know, Stripe is the perfect example. I can't tell you, I mean, a million times people have stood in the pub and said, this is such a crap service. Why doesn't somebody just do an API so we can take payments? Like people must have said that a million. And the genius of an entrepreneur like the Collisons, is is to take that idea and just do it. Like I would stand around complaining. About Irish, it. Irish, Irish, yeah, right. I would stand around complaining about it in the pub. They actually did it, and and I just take my hat off to them because they built a fantastic business. And whether it's going to be worth a hundred billion or not, I couldn't say. I don't, I don't know enough about those things. Um, but the reason why, and also because yeah, that's partly the reason why it won't be the new Google is because you know that. You know, who, who are the other search engines that you use instead of Google? Um, I mean, DuckDuckGo. I use, use DuckDuckGo on my phone and I occasionally use Bing. But 99% of the time, like every other lazy, I just. By the way, do you know what the number one search term is on Google? I didn't realize this. I saw a presentation about it the other day. You know the number one search term? Facebook? Well, you'd think it would be like. I won't say it because it's inappropriate, but I mean, you think it would be something sexual or that, but it, it's not. The number one search term on Google is Facebook yeah. because people can't even be bothered to type in facebook.com. They just type Facebook and hit return and Google finds it for them. So, but you know, Stripe isn't alone. There's lots of players in that space. There are new entrants. Uh, you've got the, the tremendous, uh, the dynamic around Square and Stripe is fantastic. And they're, but but the reason why people like me are interested in them is because of the payments data. You know, the margin on payments transactions continues to fall. And if you're looking at it from a long-term strategic perspective, it's asymptotic to zero. I mean, you'll get to a point where payments are just like water. They're just part of the atmosphere. You know, people talk about this embedded finance thing where, you know, you'll get – and part, this is partly because you've got people like Facebook coming into that space – and remember, of course, their business models don't depend on the payment margin. So if you have something like Facebook Pay, I can see exactly why people would use that. I would use that, right? I'm talking to Kalia on Messenger. Kalia says, oh, I got the tickets for the movie tonight. I say, oh, okay, here's the 15 bucks. I and I'll just type plus 15, and that's it. 15 bucks leaves my bank account, shows up in her bank account. I mean, who wouldn't use that? I mean, of course we would use that, right? But 
Facebook's business model does not depend on extracting a margin, however small, from that 15 bucks. In fact, my bet is, I don't know this from any inside information, it's just my guess. My guess is that margin can go fairly negative without impacting their business model. Because what's important to them is that we're going to a movie, which movie are we going to? Who are my friends? Which friends did I send money to? Which friends do you need to advertise movies to to get me to pay money to go and see a movie, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they're, they're, that's why I call them tech fins and not fintechs, because their business model isn't a finance business model. So with people like Stripe, you know, you can see that in time, the value of the data that's collected will, will, will just continue to mushroom and grow. And just like Google, who, you know, had a search engine and then found some business models for it, Stripe would uh, handle everybody's payments and then work out a business model of what to do with the data. The, I think the reason why people pushed back at that statement on um, on Twitter was because they don't believe that Stripe will obtain the same kind of monopoly position that Google has done. Because you know you've got people like I mean you've got these massive companies like FIS and and Chase and whatever that are doing acquiring and okay they didn't spot the. Um, they didn't spot all the opportunities that people like Square and Stripe spotted. Visa bought Plaid, right? Yeah, well, that's that's a slightly different um, thing. But yes, the 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 Visa buying Plaid, Mastercard buying Finicity, um, which made me look very clever, by the way, because I'd, I'd written a thing about why APIs were going to be the next competitive area. So I was very happy to see all that. That's a slightly different thing. So that's about controlling access to the sort of underlying rails. That's about, um, I mean, if you think, I mean, the US is a little bit unusual because in a country like the UK, you already have an instant free credit transfer network. So you, I can I can go to my account, I can send money to any other account in the UK and it's instant. I mean, it's literally whatever it is, a second or something. And it costs nothing because the banks were made to do that as part of their infrastructure. And in the US, you've got the clearinghouse and Zelle, you've got FedNow coming, um, but it's still not quite at that sort of place. But it will get there. And then you get this embedded finance idea where, you know, and again, you know, so let's use that example of Facebook Pay. I'm talking to Kalia on Facebook and I type plus $15 and the money goes from my account to her account. That's fantastic, and it's a great proposition. But how exactly does that happen? Right? How does the money come out of my bank account? Does it get pulled through the debit rails as it does now, which is costly, and there are some fraud errors and that sort of thing? Or does it get pushed through an instant credit network, which is what will happen in the future? Well, if it's going to get pushed through the instant credit network, how does the bank know that I told Facebook they could have access to my bank account? How do you manage those consents? How do you deal with the APIs to all the different banks if they're not going to be mandated in a regulatory fashion. That's what people like Plaid do. Um, and, you know, Visa could, I mean, like people like Visa and MasterCard aren't stupid. I mean, you can talk about, you know, blockchains and whatever, sort of bypassing the conventional banking networks and devastating Visa and MasterCard's business. But that would only be true if Visa and MasterCard were really stupid and didn't have really good consultants. You know, but they're not. And so they can see what's going on just the same as everybody else. MasterCard went in early into buying the rails. They bought Vocalink in the UK and, and so on. 
So they they could see, so they started to buy their instant credit networks. That's like the tracks, and then I guess you could think of the like the platform. Like, how do you get on the train? That's the APIs, and Visa went in and bought that, and now Mastercard have bought it as well. And you've got other players in that space who do great stuff, Yodly and people like that. So, and Yodly's been around forever. Yeah, yeah, but it's all done through screen scraping, not through APIs. I mean, what's different now is you're going, you're going in through these API interfaces, which are much more powerful and much more secure, but require I, I i'll give you an example of the intersection so one of the things we've spoken about before and one thing that really interests me is about how you know whether someone's a person or not right and so i quite often use twitter as the example to tease okay i go onto twitter i post all sorts of abuse to kalia because you know it's just my hobby you know i just had something to do and so Kalia intelligently blocks me, and then I just go and open up another account, right? So I'm sending messages from from Big Dick 101 or something, and so she blocks it. And so I just come back in as Dickhead 202 or something and carry on posting. Yeah. And that can't be right, right? No. So in order to fix that problem – the first thing you've got to know is, is Dickhead202 actually a person or is it a bot? Mm -hmm. Now, you can argue quite reasonably for privacy reasons that actually it's none of your business who Dickhead202 actually is. I can see that argument, right? But you're entitled to know whether it's a person or not. So now imagine one of the options in your Twitter feed was I only want tweets from people. I'm not looking at tweets from bots or whatever. Right. I only want tweets from people. That seems like a reasonable thing to do. Yeah. And then if you block one of those people, they shouldn't be able to come back in under another account, even though you don't know who the person is. Right. Right. So think about how that would work. So in our in the real world, that seems like an intractably complicated problem, which is why they don't do anything about it. Right. But in the digital identity world, it's not such a big problem. And I'll show you how it links to those APIs. Imagine, I mean, I'll just portray this as a scenario. I go to Twitter to create an account. Okay, so I'm dickhead101. And when I log into Twitter, Twitter bounces me using those APIs. Twitter bounces me to my bank and says you need to log in through your bank. So imagine now Zelle have a gateway service that does this. So, uh, so Twitter bounces me to that gateway. The gateway says, oh, okay, we know you're with Wells Fargo. I go and do my login in Wells Fargo. And Wells Fargo generate a cryptographic token, which say, yes, he logged in. Or it might, it might contain one or two other credentials. I mean, let's go down the W3C route. So let's imagine that it says um, this person has an account. This person is over 18. This person is resident in the United States. That's all it says, right? So it sends back a token plus some credentials. It doesn't say anything about who I am. And Zelle bounces that back to Twitter. Twitter doesn't know which bank that came from. Twitter just knows that it came from a regulated U.S. financial institution right. that says I'm a real person. And here's the cryptographic token. Okay. So now Dickhead101 is created. I go online. I post abuse to Kalia. Kalia blocks me or calls the police, which she'd be entitled to do. Or, or complains to Twitter. I don't know if people can even do that. But for whatever reason, Dickhead101 gets blocked, right? Mm -hmm. So now I go back into Twitter. 
and I go to create Dickheb 102, I get bounced to my bank. My bank says, sorry, we already generated a token for this. You already have a Twitter token. You know, we don't know who we don't know who's asking the other side of this, because, of course, they wouldn't know it's Twitter either. They because they would see a token because you know Twitter has a unique token. So they right. would just see that token and say, we already generated a token for this token. Right. We can send you that same token back, but we can't generate you a new one. Uh, so they, then they would send back the same token, right? I give that to Twitter. Twitter says, you're a dickhead, right? So that's a funny joke, you see. It's like, I'm not, I'm not I'm a dickhead because I, I already gave them that token. So now I, I can't have no. dickhead 102 because I already I – already, so now if I want to post some more abuse to a Kalia, now I've got to go and open another bank account. And now I go and create dickhead 102, but this time I go to Bank of America. Generate the token, come back, Kalia blocks it. Now I want to post abuse to Kalia again. Now I've got to go open another bank account, right? So, like, if I'm really dedicated to abusing Kalia, like, I might go to the effort of opening five, ten bank accounts, right? But eventually the fraud networks are going to say, why has this guy got 11 bank accounts? He's not having another one. Or, you know, because of relationships to, like, anti-money laundering and KYC rules and so on. So problems that are easy to fix in the digital identity space around that, like how do I know it's the same person? How do I know the credentials? But how do I not know who they are? These are trivial, like to anyone who went to the first information, the, the, the first IIW workshop told you how to fix that problem, right? These are, you know, but working out where to place those in the real world has proved problematic. But, but I think, you know, social media is a good example where things are getting to breaking point and something's going to have to be done. So sooner or later, they're going to have to look at digital identity as an actual solution to things. And in that new world of bank, and I pick on banks because banks are regulated institutions that have ombudsmen and complaints and branches and all this sort of thing. Like if I wake up one morning and my Facebook identity is gone and my whole life is ruined, what am I going to do? Well, there's like a Facebook help. There's like 911 identity number you can call. No. You know, you've heard countless stories from people who've been completely screwed because their Facebook account has been taken over or blocked. But if I wake up and I can't get into my bank account, I can go around to Bank of America and find out what's going on. And, you know, once you deal with the problems of interchange and liability, because they should be allowed to charge for that in return for carrying a certain liability, I think we, we edge towards the new. Should Facebook be a fiduciary? Yeah, I think so. I think it would. I, th I think, you know, given that banks were already compelled to implement all of that KYC stuff anyway, but it's just as a cost, um, finding ways to help banks to turn that into another line of business. But that line of business can't be just simply spraying your personal information all over the web. That just doesn't work. And a more sophisticated right. business based on digital identity has got a bit of a chance of, of doing it. And, and can I remember One, before you, you were talking about the, you know the different categories of, of the, the limited liability persona? Yeah, yeah. Right, like you could create, um, like your bank can be the the that could be a service they offer, right? Like we will vouch that this is real human, and we're going to hold them accountable if they threaten to kill the president, which is against the law here, or they. Yeah, yeah you know, are in Germany and they're, you know, denying the Holocaust also gets the law there. Like 
if you break the law, we're going to break the glass and tell you who they are. But if they're just saying stuff like this, they're a real human. They're not a bot because they're our customer. Private key manager or a private key, you know, someone that I'm entrusting my private key to. Well, in my my head, that is the bank. I mean, one of my constant objections to, to some of the claims of the self-sovereign which actually i think is going to fragment because i think the i think the work that's going on on the credential side of that is really interesting and valuable and i really think it's going somewhere and i'm excited on behalf of clients that we're starting to see some standardization on the credential side of things because that really does open up whole new kinds of business on the id side i'm less convinced because it's just not obvious to me that that, and this will sound horrible and patronising and elitist and and whatever, because it is obviously, um, but I'm not convinced that the average person either wants to manage their digital identity or is capable of doing it. If you make people responsible for managing their digital identities, the first thing that will happen is your grandma will get a message purporting to come from the U.S. Treasury or something, and they'll end and and she'll end up essentially you know, allowing somebody in Ukraine to take over her identity and do whatever she wants with it. So I'm not I'm not convinced about that on the identity side. I think the idea of having regulated custodians managing this, e.g. banks or other institutions, is, is probably the way forward. But in order for that to happen, we have to find ways to make it go with the commercial grain. There have to be ways that enable banks to make some money out of that. And, that, and as I say, that can't be just basically spraying your personal information around. It's got to be more sophisticated. And, that, and that's precisely why I think some of what we think of as old ideas in the identity space, you know, t- take on a bit of a new life in this world where everyone's got to be online. Because now all of a sudden, proving you're a student for certain purposes is no longer a matter of pulling out some tattered piece of cardboard from your genes, you know, now it's something you've got to demonstrate online. Well, if you make people demonstrate that online by showing their passports or whatever nonsense is dreamt up, you'll make the identity problem infinitely worse. So, right. So I guess I'm I'm sort of optimistic that there's an opportunity now for some of that thinking to come back towards the mainstream again. That's why I'm optimistic about it. So you, I want to come back to the the this word you used earlier about community-centric smart money. Yeah. Which is fascinating because when I think of, when I think of that a little bit, I mean, my grandparents, you know, came over from um, after World War II to um, the Boston area. And I, I remember um, there were, you know, um, uh, community credit unions, right? And ways that a new community and an immigrant community came together to vouch for each other where, it didn't feel like there was a central authority, although it had to get regulated at some levels for insurance purposes, et cetera. Um, but digital money enables and affords that. It's programmatic. Community can take things into their own hands, which feels different, uh, particularly as it relates to privacy, surveillance, and anonymity from purely uh, third-party commercial infrastructures, banks, brokerages, etc. I think that's true. And the reason why I think it's true is because the decentralization makes the creation of new kinds of currency trivial. Like if, if we'd have decided a few years ago 
you know what we should really I mean, i'll use this as, a, as an example just to just to force a, a discussion but you know we could have said you know what there really should be islamic money there should be a kind of money that has no bears no interest and you can't use it for buying alcohol and whatever um and it should have certain characteristics built into it so there, there should be some islamic money and there might be a billion people around the world who want to use islamic money right not not for any economic reason not because it, it's cheaper than dollars or um but because it, it reflects the values of their community you know and you mean you mean a currency i mean a currency I mean, like Hawala is a way that they pay. Yeah, no, I mean an actual currency. I mean an Islamic e-dinar, you know. So you, 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 and by the way, I'm not the only person who's had this idea. So you stack up a huge pile of gold in the Dubai depository. You issue cryptographic tokens against that gold, and then people can swap them around and do what they like with them. But perhaps, you know, it may be, I mean, I can think, again, I'll say this is a silly example just to illustrate. But suppose I want to have a wallet that I can store that gold in. Maybe I have to be a member of a community or maybe, you know, I mean, you could imagine, you know, you know, we, we make up, I mean, you just said about your grandparents. So suppose, you know, you make up some, some Yiddish money and, but you can only have the Yiddish money. If uh, a rabbi says you can have the wallet, he has to put his stamp on the wallet for you to have it. I mean, that sounds ridiculous, but maybe some communities would want that, you know, and, and the corollary of that would be, of course, that because the way trust operates, within those communities using that money would be costless essentially because they, they would operate the uh, services themselves but moving money between communities would would then become more difficult and would incur foreign exchange fees and all this sort of thing so the difference between the past and 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 now is that in the past you essentially only belong to one community which quite often was geographic but it could have been religious or or that's not true anymore because all of us belong to multiple overlapping communities. Now, the idea of using different kinds of money in those communities may sound a little weird at first. I mean, if, if it didn't, I'd be a bit disappointed because otherwise I'd have written a boring book about it, you know. But, but actually, you have to remember, this is intermediated. It's no longer me looking in my wallet and trying to sort out my Swiss francs and euros and uh, Turkish lira or so on. That's, that's, this is just me waving my phone over something. And, you know, the supercomputer that's on the other end of my phone and the supercomputer that's on the other end of your phone can, in a nanosecond, work out between them which currencies are acceptable, which ones aren't, what rates they want, what rates they don't want. If we decide, um, I don't know, you know, is there's a certain kind of money that you can't use for adult services. Um, it would happen automatically. It would just be like you wave the phone and say, sorry, you don't have any of the or, or, you know, maybe my phone and your phone would agree on a marketplace that we both trust where you go to exchange the currencies. But the, but the point is, the, these are the things that happen in nanoseconds. They're not. Um... So whenever I look at my phone, if the money that makes that I want, that I want to store is is my um, New York money, you know. Um, then my phone will go out and engage in transactions and it will get hold of New York money. And that's, again, that sounds weird, but when you, the more you think about it, the more you realize it isn't actually that weird. It's, um, I think it makes a lot of sense. Especially if you agree with that Jane Jacobs, Cities and the Wealth of Nations stuff, because the money of New York 
and the money of Madison, Wisconsin, it, it made sense 100 years ago for that to be the same money, theory of optimal currency areas and all that sort of thing. But it's not transparently obvious to me that there'll be the same money going forward. Almost all expenditure is local, isn't it? Cash. So I don't know. I, I, all I'm saying is I think the pandemic has been a bit of a shock to the system. We need to rethink money and identity. But my contention is that actually some of the solutions to these things are already out there in those communities, those digital money and digital identity communities, and things which would have seemed crazy and speculative and ridiculous a few years ago really aren't when you, when you start to apply that new thinking to the problems that we have now. So you, it, in the beginning, you mentioned QR codes, yeah. right? And I live in Venice Beach, and since the pandemic, the the use of QR codes for outdoor eating and commerce and coffee and shopping is exploding. It's something we thought was going to happen years ago, but took its time. And obviously it, it, it rose its head in China with WeChat. Um, but now the COVID has kind of accelerated the adoption of QR codes. And how does that play into the future of money? Uh, well, that, that acceleration, I think, is interesting because it's not obvious to me that things will go back. So... I think the, the restaurant example is a good example. So there's a place around the corner from here. They have QR codes on the tables now. So you go in, you sit down, you scan it, the menu comes up, you choose what you want, and then the, the waiter brings the food over. Maybe you order some drinks. The drinks get added on. You know, they show up on your phone automatically. Um, and then when you've finished, you just, you just get up and walk out. And... Uh, I don't see that going back to the old way is a better experience for the customer or for the or for the waiter. You know, the waiter's going to get tips for serving you food, right? Not for standing around with a stupid card machine waiting for you to put cards in. And then you just get frustrated because there's a lot of people who know a lot more about this than me say your last experience in a restaurant is the worst experience sitting around waiting for the bill and trying to work out how much the tip should be yeah. is the worst part of the evening. So getting rid of that. Um, no, I don't know. I, I just, I'm not sure things will go back. I, e even at the British Airways lounge at Heathrow now, you don't, you don't go to the buffet yourself. You sit down, you scan the QR, you choose what you want. Nice chap brings it over to you. When you finished, you get up and walk out. You, what's wrong with that? Yeah. Okay, you, you can cut that bit in earlier on, probably. So. <laughs> well. Good. So, look, have you got? Have you guys got enough? Can you salvage something out of the wreckage of that that you can turn into a podcast? This is all going no, online. We, we don't edit, Dave. No, no editing. You're authentic. <laughs> you caught me at the end of the day. You guys are very interesting to talk to. You make you make it very easy. Um, well, look, thanks very much for that. I, I really enjoyed it. And um, for talking with just really looking forward to IIW next week, Kalia, and looking forward for some, some, some new thinking around some of these issues, but with renewed impetus, I think. Great. Well, we'd love to have you back sometime to chat more. And thanks. Absolutely. Thanks, Dave. For another edition of PSA Today, number 21, Wednesday, October 14th. Thank you, Dave Birch. Thank you, Kalia, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye, Bye guys.